Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good morning. This is Jay Levine, the host of the Antitrust Law Source podcast and the editor of its blog. And I am thrilled to be joined by my colleague and longtime friend, Alan Carter, from our Columbus office. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Jay. Good to talk to you. So we are here. You know that I, hopefully you have heard of uh, the podcast that I did with Luke Fedlam, the head of our uh, sports law practice. And that podcast talked about the recent NCAA case from the Supreme Court that came down on June 21st. And our focus there was really you know, broader as to what it means for collegiate sports, what it means for players, what it means for the NCAA. But Alan and I are going to sort of break it down from a more antitrust legal perspective as to sort of what did the court do here and what, if anything, is novel or not novel about what the court did. So without any further ado, uh, Alan, why don't you uh, tell everybody what actually this case was about? Sure. So this is uh, sort of a consolidated case, uh, and it was brought by some student athletes and former student athletes against the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, and uh, some member institutions, primarily a few of the the leagues that make up the NCAA. The student athletes allege that the NCAA and its member institutions violated the Sherman Act by agreeing to restrict the compensation that colleges and universities will give to student athletes for playing various sports. And at particular issue here are the revenue generating sports, football and basketball. Exactly. And I think as the Supreme Court said, it was the uh, current interconnected set of NCAA rules that limit the compensation. This really didn't involve name, image, and image and likeness, but basically all other forms of payment. And so this was brought sort of years ago, and there was a uh, consolidated trial before the judge in the Northern District of California. And sort of what did the judge in at the district court level, what did she do in this case? So Judge Wilkins held a long hearing and issued a 50-page opinion, and she, I guess, right to the bottom line, she found that, yes, the NCAA's rules, and I'm using the NCAA to sort of encompass all of the defendants like the court did, but the, the NCAA's rules were anti-competitive and had anti-competitive effects, and the pro-competitive benefits of those rules did not outweigh the anti-competitive effects in some instances, and she issued an injunction that enjoined the NCAA from enforcing its restrictions on education-related benefits. She kept in place the sort of non-educational compensation benefits and or restrictions on benefits that the NCAA has had for a period of time, most notably being that colleges and universities can't pay their players to play. They can't treat them like uh, sort of professional athletes. They can't treat them like professional athletes. That's exactly right. So getting into, a, I guess, a little bit more detail. So the district court sort of found, and I don't think there's any real disagreement, that the NCAA enjoys monopsony power or nearly dominance in the market for 
athletic services by men and women in Division One, you know, basketball and football and, and other sports. Essentially, they're the only game in town. If you want to sell your labor services, you got to sell it at a collegiate level to a NCAA member institution. And the district court essentially found that the restrictions on that compensation were anti-competitive because almost by definition, they are designed to make sure that the athletes are not paid as much as they otherwise would be. The district court turned to the, you know, the alleged pro-competitive justifications for the restraints and the, and the NCAA had suggested that these restrictions on compensation the restrictions on schools giving compensation to student athletes helped, quote unquote, increase output in college sports and maintain a competitive balance. But what did the district court find with regards to those alleged justifications? Well, the the court didn't find any evidence that those alleged justifications actually increased consumer demand or output for college sports. And the NCA's rules for preservation of amateurism didn't really widen consumer choice by providing a unique product, so to speak. And the district court agreed that, you know, while there's monopsony power in the labor market, the seller side consumer market is worthwhile looking at. And it turned to the task of analyzing the concept of amateurism and how the NCA's concept of amateurism has changed over the years. And ultimately found that the NCAA's concept of amateurism has never been consistently defined by the NCAA. Yeah, I, I think she said there was no coherent definition of amateurism, and she sort of said, I can't see how how these restraints sort of help it. The interesting thing is, you know, she pointed out that, you know, the compensation rules have been not weakened, but essentially have been become a little bit more lax in recent years. And the consumer demand hasn't suffered a whit. In fact, consumer demand and the demand for college sports has just increased. So clearly there's no relationship between these restraints and the output of, of collegiate sports. From my own experience in having you know litigated antitrust cases against um, professional leagues in the past, that often is the downfall for the leagues because they try to loosen the rules a little bit to try to, you know, strike a balance. But the problem is when you loosen the rules and the consumer demand is competitive balance isn't affected, all that does is evidence of the lie that these just these restraints are needed for the justification. So, right. it, you know, well, and and then you look at the the revenue of college sports you know, over the last 20 years, and it certainly not went down. And and the the athletes were able to point to the significant amount of revenue that SEC, for instance, and other NCAA leagues have been able to generate over the last few years. And there's no doubt, I, I don't think there's any doubt in the district court's mind, at least, that demand hasn't suffered, but has probably been increased yeah. over the years as these restrictions have been sort of loosened. Right. But sort of where the rubber really hit the road was, I guess, in the third part where the judge then sort of looked at the actual rules and determined whether any pro-competitive effects. And she did say that distinguishing student athletes from professionals may be 
a legitimate justification. But then the question, do these rules really further or promote those legitimate or are there substantially less restrictive alternatives? And this is where she kind of split the baby, right? Right, right. She she looked at, in particular, the education-related benefits and said, well, you know, just to put it in sort of layman's terms, why are you restricting the amount of scholarships, for instance, that a university can offer? Why are you limiting the amount of cash rewards a university can offer students who graduate or perform well in the classroom? Then she compared that to the sort of what I call the compensation-related restrictions, which the court calls non-education-related compensation and benefits, and said, well, you know, if amateurism really is something worth preserving and the the educational objectives of the universities are something that are worth pursuing, then let's loosen the restrictions on the education-related benefits and hold in place the non-education restrictions. So that's what she did. And the Supreme Court sort of looked at at uh, the cash rewards for athletic achievement that are allowed and and said, well, you know, the district court's new rules that she set allowing cash rewards for education-related achievements up to the amount of athletic achievements is reasonable. Right. Well, I, you know, sort of before we get to sort of the, the Supreme Court, so it, it was interesting that you're right. Education-related benefits are things such as scholarships for graduate or vocational schools or payments for tutoring or paid post-eligibility internships, things. Mm-hmm. And that seems absolutely appropriate. But as you said, you know, things that would sort of make them feel more like professional athletes, just straight out pay for play, those restrictions she she left in uh, place. And the Ninth Circuit felt that the district court had sort of struck a, a good balance and affirmed it. And so it went up to the uh, Supreme Court. Now, one of the things that is very, very important for everybody to understand is that the NCAA wanted an absolute vacate the entire thing. They they said everything was wrong. The The student athletes had appealed to the Ninth Circuit arguing that even the restrictions on sort of the pay for play, the district court erred in not finding that to be a Sherman Act violation. But before the Supreme Court, they sort of left that alone. They did not bring that up to the Supreme Court. So the posture of the case was the NCAA said the district court was wrong in everything. And the student athletes were simply looking to affirm the district court's opinion. So they were no longer arguing about sort of the straight pay for play, which was, you know, an interesting, and we've talked about this before, kind of, I think, a strategic call on the behalf of the of the plaintiffs where they didn't want, you know, the Supreme, they weren't sure how the Supreme Court would go and kind of wanted to take a, a longer view of this war this is a campaign, if you will, right. and they didn't want the dis- the Supreme Court to come out with any sort of adverse decision that would preclude them from attacking those kind of restrictions in the future, right? Yeah, they. it seems, reading the tea leaves a little bit, they had gained enough ground that they were happy with, uh, and they didn't want to lose that ground uh, by allowing the Supreme Court to sort of split the baby, and um, so they maybe for that reason or for other reasons, you know, there might be political reasons involved too, 
given that the amount of legislation that's pending across the country <laughs> currently. So there might have been some political reasons to not engage in that fight. But whatever reason they had, they chose not to bring the non-education related restrictions before the Supreme Court and, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves. But I think Kavanaugh lamented that decision a little bit in his concurrence. Well, the plaintiffs might be lamenting it in hindsight, too. But uh, as you said, uh, we'll get to uh, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, concurrence, which uh, certainly was a lot of fun to uh, read. So just to set the stage, the only thing before is whether the district court's finding that education-related expenses, any any effort to limit those, violated the, the Sherman Act. That was before the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch sort of comes out saying, okay, let's let's remember that there are certain premises that are taken as given and that we have to follow the analysis, you know, in that. Like the district court, essentially, he no one contested the NCAA enjoyed monopsony, which is essentially monopoly power on the buyer market in the labor market. They're the only people who can you know, essentially, quote unquote, hire these student athletes and that if there's any limitation on their wages, there will be an anti-competitive effect. It's it's almost a tautology. And that no one also questioned that depressing their wages would also depress the output. You think back on it, if there were no rules whatsoever about pay for play, let's say, would Kobe Bryant have gone to the NBA Right. Would you know? Would King James have gone to the NBA? You or know, how many more championships would Alabama have won in football? Yeah, let's not bring that up. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a sore point. But it is true that there were people who bypassed the NBA because of that, and certainly there are people who stayed in school less because of that. I mean, that there's certainly no question about. So. But before we get to the actual opinion, I want to I want to get to something that w- we've talked about before. So there, the the anti-competitive effects were in this labor market for player services. The pro-competitive justifications were in the what I'll call the consumer market, were in you know competitive balance and building a better product facing the consumer. But the question is, can you can you justify restraints in one market, meaning the labor market, with benefits in a separate market? Now, the parties seem to have just assumed yes. There was a Mike that said you can't. And it was odd that Justice Gorsuch actually sort of discussed this point at some level and then just says, but the parties before us do not pursue this line. So he's not getting into it. Why do you think he did that? You know, that was one of the more interesting parts of the opinion. On the one hand, you know, at at the district court level, the universities made the argument that you should look at both the buyer and consumer side of the market. And the district court credited that and, and went through the analysis that for whatever reason, the universities and the NCAA didn't make that argument at the Supreme Court level. On the one hand, I sort of think, well, you know, American Express is out there and that's sort of a line of of cases that is developing and there is an opportunity for him to say something about it. And on the other hand, I I think it's just sort of such a hot topic in the Miki and and down at the district court level. I 
I think he thought that he might get criticized for ignoring it altogether. <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of how I viewed it because uh, it, it did come off as a hey, we acknowledge you guys, we see you, and we're not going to talk about it because the parties before us haven't brought it up again here. So, I have a, a slightly different take, and and I have zero proof for my my take. <laughs> sure. Me speculation. But you know, I wonder if. He believes that you cannot justify restraints in one market with benefits in a different market. And I think he would, you know, Amex was a platform type market where you had two sides to the same platform. And the Supreme Court had said, you got to look at the total anti-competitive effects and the total pro-competitive effects from both sides of that same two-sided market, whereas here it's not a two-sided market, and they really are two distinct markets. And I'm wondering if Gorsuch is just sort of putting it out there that he may be amenable to an argument that the anti-competitive effects and the pro-competitive benefits have to be in the same market, and that if you're going to try to justify restraints in market A with benefits in market B, I'm not going to buy that. I'm just wondering if he's sort of putting it out there that he'd be amenable to it. And since he's speaking on behalf of the court, I wonder if that was kind of a signal. Pure speculation. I don't know. I think it's more likely than not that you're right. Of course. This, <laughs> I have to say that. But the you know this whole opinion sort of strikes as a preview of things to come. So that wouldn't surprise me at all, especially with where that sort of – I guess I'll call it analysis is dropped into the opinion. It's even in sort of an odd spot, you know, you, you might expect to see it somewhere else other than in the discussion about whether the rule of reason should have been applied at all. Right. Um, but be that as it may, your interpretation is probably, it's at least more interesting than mine. Well, I, I don't <laughs> know about that, but we'll see. But the NCAA put forth two basic arguments to the Supreme court. They basically said that, the rule of reason, essentially, they're almost immune from the antitrust laws, that rule of reason should not have been applied. And if it should have been applied, it should have been applied extremely quickly. And then secondly, that the judge applied it incorrectly. But in taking the first, that it shouldn't have been applied at all, they first say that they're a joint venture, and therefore, some rules are necessary for joint venture. So therefore, it should be okay. But Gorsuch didn't buy that argument. No, Gorsuch didn't like their quick look approach, you know, sort of deferential quick look approach to their rules under their their joint venture. He acknowledges that in order for a sport to be played, the two sides sort of have to agree to some things, you know, the most obvious being the rules of the game, so to speak, how many players can be on the field, how many scholarships can be given to student athletes and that sort of thing. but. At the end of the day, he he said, hey, you might be a joint venture and, and sure, rules have to be in place, but that doesn't mean that we are going to just defer to you on every single restriction you put in place. And by the way, NCAA and sports conferences, you have monopoly power. <laughs> so in those sorts of cases, the rule reason applies. One thing that I, struck me a little bit interesting here is he didn't get into any analysis of why per se didn't apply at all. Yeah, I think that's because the, the plaintiffs probably never brought it up. Yeah. Um, understanding that, you know, sports leagues 
depending on what we're talking about, there hasn't been enough litigation or enough decision on on these types of things to basically say it's per se. But I, you're right. He didn't he didn't mention the words. And, you know, he, he did say that just because some restraints are necessary does not mean that all aspects of interleague cooperation are legitimate. So he kind of dispensed that. He then basically also dealt with the NCAA's argument that their board of regents kind of gave them a pass on everything. And he said, you're you're overreaching on that, right? He said that, you know, all that said is that, yeah, certain price fixing rules, which may otherwise have been per se, are going to be under the rule of reason. But again, that wasn't a pass on all NCAA compensation restrictions, even though there was a passing reference to such restrictions in the Supreme Court case. So he he did not really read the prior NCAA v. Board of Regents case the way the NCAA reads it or hoped he would read it. No, he he definitely saw it as dicta. And, you know, another factor, you covered that pretty well. And another, another factor he sort of hung his hat on was the fact that the Board of Regents case was decided so long ago. Yeah. And the way that the market had the market factors, so to speak, had had changed so much in the intervening 30 plus years since Board of Regents had been decided that even if it wasn't dicta, the court still would need to revisit the actual facts as it applies to this case. Yeah. And I think, again, that's a theme that comes out of this opinion that you got to look at the facts. There's no I'm not there's no you don't get a pass. There's no bright line rules and that, you know, you got to look at how have they been doing since then. And then they you know, the last argument was sort of were a commercial enterprise. And that kind of Gorsuch gave, you know, sort of the back of the hand uh, or non-commercial enterprise. Right. And they're not a commercial enterprise. Right. Justice Gorsuch gave it the backhand and said, well, you might have a non-commercial objective, but you're still operating in interstate commerce and uh, you're still affecting interstate commerce. So your non-commercial objectives don't trump that. Right. Only baseball is ever going to be able to have that. And that's just because it was decided 100 years ago. But and then turning quickly, they, they basically also argued that the district court's application of the rule of reason was wrong. And again, here, Justice Gorsuch sort of gratuitously throws in a line about this kind of three-step framework about mm-hmm. proving anti-competitive effects, looking at the pro-competitive justifications, and then seeing whether there's any substantially less restrictive restraints that would still meet those pro-competitive justifications. And then he, he he sort of utters this line that seems gratuitous, saying these three steps do not represent a rote checklist, nor may they be employed as an inflexible substitute for careful analysis. But yet nobody was arguing that at all. And again, that sort of seems to presage that he has something in mind. And again, the the tone and tenor of this is, look at the facts, look at the facts. I'm not going to let you just sort of blindly follow bright line rules or a bright line framework that do not bring the light of day to all of the potential effects and benefits of what we're supposed to be looking at. That's right. And the the next line in the opinion says basically that he says, as we've seen, what is required to assess whether a challenge restraint harms competition can vary depending on the circumstances. And like you said, if there's any big takeaway from this case, and there's 
several big takeaways outside of just the uh, antitrust road, you know, in sports and whatnot. But if there's any takeaway for me, it's what you just said. It depends on the circumstances. We're going to march down this three-step process and use that framework, but it's merely a framework for analyzing carefully. And if the three-step process doesn't allow you to analyze carefully, then don't engage in the three-step process is how I, I read it. Now that said, if I were a court given Amex and in this case and Justice Gorsuch's walk through the three-step process in this case, I'm probably going to use yeah. the three-step process. Yeah, I think it, it seems like a safe way, way to conduct the analysis. You know, it, it, it may not be mandated, but it, I, I would say that Justice Gorsuch has certainly endorsed it to some extent. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he's just cautioning. You can use it. Just don't use it to cover anything up. That's right. And somehow not give a full sum examination to the facts. But as long as you do that, the three-step process sort of works analytically. The NCAA basically said that the district court forced them to essentially find the least restrictive alternative, and that was inappropriate. And, you know, Justice Gorsuch said, that's not true. You know, the district courts looked at whether there were substantially less restrictive alternatives, which is exactly the standard. And what she did was perfectly appropriate. It wasn't micromanaging anything. It, it, it left, a, you know, sort of room for the NCAA to maneuver within the injunction and sort of just didn't find that. And Gorsuch, you know, sort of reminded the NCAA, remember that your anti-competitive effects are absolutely clear and your pro-competitive benefits are either non-existent or very murky. So when you sort of look at whether less restrictive alternatives, you kind of have to look at that a little bit. But the other argument, which we've talked about is, and which I found, is that the NCAA claimed that the district court sort of redefined their product and didn't give enough to the amateurism or whatever. And that, of course, it's just sort of flattened them on. He had some good lines in that section, but you know the the bottom line was a party cannot avoid antitrust scrutiny by integrating its restriction or its restraint into the product itself or redefining the product to subsume the restraint. Whatever ground Gorsuch didn't cover in his piece, Kavanaugh certainly covered in his his concurrence, but that's a great segue. So, I mean, you know, Kavanaugh basically said none of these rules are are legal. It didn't come up before us, but even the pay for play rules are not. And this this concept of an unpaid athlete is our product. You know, tell us what he said about that, because to me, that was some of the some of the best lines. They were some of the best lines. You know, he he went went through a, a series of of industries where a price fixed restraint couldn't be re recabined as part of a product. So you know, he says that if you go into a restaurant, the, one of the features of the restaurant isn't that you prefer cooks who work for free, or if you go into hospitals, you know, it, it's not going to be sufficient that the hospital says, well, we we cap our nurses pay because we want a, a pure form of 
of healthcare or getting in journalism. We don't pay our our reporters because we want a pure form of journalism. He, he went through a series of of traditions and that sort of thing and said, you know, really at the end of the day, that's all the NCA is doing here is they're arguing that they should be able to have amateurism, but really all that is is not paying the players in a highly compensated well, industry, highly, uh, college college football or college basketball. Right. You know, in a very rich industry. Very rich industry. You can't say the product is unpaid labor. Right. Um, and again, I think that sort of smacks of this. You can't just slap a label in something and avoid scrutiny. And, yeah. you know, to me, again, that's part and parcel of the theme of this opinion is we're going to look at everything, at the facts, and we're not just going to allow labels to bypass real examination. You know, it said the NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. And he couldn't, you know, he couldn't see how any other, how any restrictions could be uh, upheld and that the traditions of amateurism, I mean, here, and again, for someone who's been labeled as a, you know, obviously a conservative justice, but I mean, this, those traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student-athletes who are not fairly compensated. It almost sounds like, you know, a union. Yeah, uh, union boss. And, you know, both Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh took the NCAA to task for the, the amount of compensation that athletic directors receive or yeah. that the commissioners receive. And you're just comparing that to the amount of benefits that the student athletes receive, which is de minimis well, outside of a scholarship. You know, it's funny when we litigated years and years ago, the, the Freeman McNeil case, which brought free agency to football, again, competitive balance was one of the reasons for some of the free agent restriction rules that the NFL had put forward. And, you know, and we had shown that that's not true for general managers. You don't restrict them. You don't restrict coaches' salaries. And yet, so the richest teams can afford the best coaches, which obviously affect the performance of the team. And if you're really serious about it, why aren't you restricting that? And it's sort of, you know, you start to feel that the only people who get restricted is the labor. And it, it was interesting to see both Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh sort of explicitly knock down those kinds of justifications. So obviously there's there's a lot of implications here for the NCAA. We've talked about it before. and sure. and But in terms of antitrust law, to me, the big takeaway is that examine the facts. There's, you know, slapping a label is not going to help trying to hide behind some sort of procedural framework or trying to hide behind some procedural label. That is not going to be a substitute for real examination of the effects and benefits. And where those effects and benefits must lie, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm wondering if we're going to see some movement on and clarity on on that in future cases. But for me, that was the biggest sort of takeaway from this opinion as an antitrust lawyer. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'd say maybe three big takeaways for me. One, like you mentioned, the circumstances matter more so than a road analysis. Two, I, there's no new antitrust law made by this opinion necessarily. You know, as Justice Gorsuch said, the uh, district court applied established antitrust principles and they, and she applied them properly and they affirmed for that reason. And I think the third 
big takeaway is the last line of Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, which is the NCAA is not above the law. And, you know, that, that might not be an antitrust point, but I think it's, I think it is an antitrust point in the sense that the Supreme Court's not going to offer immunity to traditional, well-funded, highly popular entities just because they are highly funded popular entities and and everybody is subject to the antitrust laws unless Congress gives them an immunity. Right. And in fact, that was exactly what the Supreme Court said. If, if you think you're immune, got to go to Congress. Yep. Okay. I think uh, we're, we're pretty much out of time. If anybody has any questions or comments, uh, feel free to contact us. You can reach me on Twitter at J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E. Also, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You can email me at J-L-E-V-I-N-E at porterite.com. Alan, how do people get a hold of you? Oh, you can get a hold of me at acarter at porterite.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, and I'm on Twitter as Double Buckeye. Thank you very much again. This is Jay Levine, the host of Antitrust Law Source Podcasts. Hope you have a great day. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose, and you should not consider it as such. It does not necessarily reflect the views of the firm as to any particular matter or those of its clients. All rights reserved.